Hello, I'm Harriet Smith and welcome to series two of Dietitian Cafe, where we will be discussing the world of nutrition and dietetics. From the behaviour change approach to culinary medicine to working in the media, we've got lots of varied and exciting guests lined up for this series. We hope that you and your families are continuing to stay well during these challenging times. And we'd like to reassure you as our listeners that of course these episodes are all being recorded remotely. In this first episode, we're delighted to be joined by registered dietitian Samantha Howard, who is an expert in the behavior change approach. Sam is an HCPC registered dietitian and a member of the BDA. She's also director of Sunlight Nutrition Limited and behavior change training. Sam trains as a dietitian at the University of Nottingham, and she's since acquired a variety of clinical dietetic experience. Her first post, for example, was working in a rotational role at Queen's Medical Centre and Nottingham City Hospital. She later moved into adult gastro, surgical and ITU roles, and then moved into paediatrics, where she worked in special schools. More recently, Sam has joined forces with another dietitian, and they formed Sunlight Nutrition Limited, and they've continued to develop their business over the last three years. In 2019, Sam took over the management of behaviour change training from Dimpler Pearson, and she's worked tirelessly to modernise and evolve the business into the virtual world that we find ourselves in today. Sam lives on a farm in rural Nottinghamshire with her family. Hi, Sam. Thank you so much for joining us virtually today. Hi, Harriet. Thank you very much for the introduction there. You're welcome. So I think... Um, First of all, it'd be great to find out a little bit about you and your background in dietetics. And then, of course, we can go on to discuss um, behaviour change training and why it's so important for practitioners. So my first question to you is, can you just tell us where your interest in nutrition and dietetics stems from? Well, I think I was um, the sort of kid at school that was into science and maths. And um, I sort of ended up finding an interest in food and nutrition Um, from school really so I was really fortunate in my school I could do a GCSE in food technology and then I did an A level in food science and nutrition and I had a fantastic teacher who sort of supported me to find um, dietetics I didn't know anything about it until um, I was really looking for for what to do at university Um, and I suppose that passion for science and food and nutrition and wanting to work with people and it all just came together um, with dietetics um, and so I applied and got into my first choice uni and the rest is history really. And where was your first choice of uni? Where did you end up training? Uh, so I went to the University of Nottingham um, a long time ago now. I went there in 2003, uh, finished in 2007 um, and I absolutely loved it I loved the course I loved the place um and for me it was the you know a fantastic four years I always remember them and did you have any idea towards the end of the degree what you wanted to do with your dietetic career or, or did it evolve as you sort of went into your first dietetic role um not exactly no um I always thought I wanted to work in a hospital I was always interested in that kind of clinical environment um, and I enjoyed that on my placements Um, but I was quite open-minded going into the world of work I was keen to get as much experience as I could in lots of different clinical areas um, and make the most of all the opportunities that came my way really 
Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you mentioned before you actually took a year out after you finished qualifying to go and become a chalet girl. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So um, I'm I'm an August birthday. So when I started university, I was only just 18. I went straight from school to uni, four years at uni. And before I took my first dietetic post, I decided that I wanted to have a year out just to have a bit of me time, find, my, find myself for want of a better word. Um, so I had a year out. Um, and in that year out, I worked... Um, in various places but did a, a season in a ski resort um as a as a chalet host so i was cooking and cleaning um for five months in the mountains which was amazing um but actually from a dietetic point of view i think it helped me quite a lot um going into my clinical role because i was working with people the whole time so it's all about getting to know people and, you know, finding out about where they're from, their histories, um, and also the, the practical cookery skills. So I was cooking a three-course dinner six days a week as part of my job. Um, I was having to cater for special diets. Um, and then I found that I was also supporting quite a lot of my colleagues with catering for special diets as well. Um, so I think, although maybe a little bit unconventional, that experience... Um, definitely gave me a good grounding when going into a, a very clinical role in the hospital. So tell us a bit more about your first dietetic job once you came back from your ski season. So I um, actually applied for jobs while I was still away so I wanted to have something lined up um, but the first dietetic job I had was Queen's Medical Centre in Nottingham. It's actually the hospital where I did my B placement. So I was really fortunate that I knew the hospital. I knew quite a lot of the staff um, in the team there. So it wasn't quite as daunting as it might have otherwise been. Um, so I went into my first post. Um, it was a rotational post. Um, so I did all sorts of things. Um, a lot of um, healthcare of the elderly wards. I did some stroke rehab. I did a bit of oncology. I did some gastro did a couple of outpatient clinics. We did cardiac rehab talks. Um, so really varied, lots of different experience um, and great to work with so many fantastic dietitians um, and wider MDTs and, and pick up lots of skills um, from them as well. And how long did you stay in that role for before moving into paediatrics? So I was at, at Queen. I was at in Nottingham at Queens and City for just over a year, and then I moved to Doncaster and Bassett Law um, and took on a clinical. I was in adult clinical role there first, so I was working on intensive care for two years, and then adult surgical wards and some gastro alongside that. So mixture of inpatients and outpatients, and then after that, I then moved into paediatrics within Doncaster and Bassett Law hospitals. Um, so I worked, uh, it's a district general hospital, so the, the roles were all quite varied. So I was doing a mixture um, of inpatient work within paediatrics, outpatient work, and then I covered some special schools as well, looking after tube-fed children in the community, did a little bit of home visits within that. Um, but we tried to see most of the children in their school settings rather than in the hospital um, to try and minimise disruption for them, really. Yeah, that sounds like a, a really 
interesting and unique role that you had working as a special dietitian in a school. Um, mm. It might not be a role that lots of dietitians are familiar with. Could you tell us a bit more about what your day-to-day work involved in that role? Yeah, so that particular role, um, I was in, so there's sort of two school roles that um, I've worked in. The first one was when I was still working with Doncaster and Bassett Law. So I was sort of going out and running clinics in schools. Um, So that was a very kind of clinical reviewing tube fed children or children on special diets, children on oral nutritional supplements, some with weight management, but all within that school setting. So it, it meant that the children weren't being taken out of school to attend appointments. The parents came into school and met me there. Um, and I set those clinics up um, at the time to try and make it as a nice experience for those patients, really. Um, and then the other job that I had in schools um, was actually after that, um, I worked in more of a health promotion role um, in a secondary school um so i had a bit of a break from pediatrics and then picked up this other role um and the the health promotion role was really different because that was working in a mainstream school and working directly with teachers um and pupils um i was i was still employed by hospital trust and sort of seconded into the school um but but a really interesting environment to be working in working with non-clinical people um did a lot of work with the catering staff as well developing menus um looking at allergy information so it was really varied um and it's been really interesting for me being able to look at the communication side of things and the behavior change skills that i've picked up along the way and be able to apply them to such a huge variety of settings working with both clinical and non non-clinical staff and see what a difference that can make to my experience and also the experience of the people I'm working with. Yeah, and that, that brings us nicely onto my next question. Um, you've obviously got lots of varied experience in different dietetic roles and clinical sectors. So when did you begin to develop an interest in behavior change skills? And was that whilst you were working in, in a clinical role or was that whilst you were working at the school, for example? So that's a, a really good question. Um, and actually, it started right at the very beginning. Um, so I was really fortunate when I was working in Nottingham that my manager at the time um, was real, a real advocate for behaviour change. Um, and she organised in-house training for our team of dietitians um, when I was in Nottingham. So I was really fortunate to meet Dimpna, um, who came to deliver the training in the first six months of me being in post. Um, so really early on in my career. And I did the part one course and I just thought it was amazing. Um, and just it just really made me think about things from a patient perspective. And I think that's really interesting because when we're at university, we're taught all about the clinical side of things, the knowledge that we need to have. And actually sometimes to flip it on its head and think about, well, how does that feel as the patient? How does the patient receive that information? Um, Really made a difference to me. Um, And then I went on to do the the part two course um, with Dimpner. And then after that, um, Dimpner and I sort of stayed in touch and she actually invited me to facilitate on the courses. So that's something I've been doing since 2009. 
2010. So, you know, get, getting on for 10 years now um, of facilitating on the courses. And then um, it sort of just carried on from there, really. I kept, kept my... Um, kept in touch with Dimpner, kept facilitating on the courses. And then in 2017, uh, when I set up my own freelance business, I then had a little bit more flexibility and a bit more capacity to pick up a bit more work with Dimpner and sort of it's evolved from there really. Um, she was ready to start to do a little bit less and I was available to do a bit more. And so between us, we've sort of gradually handed over the the work to me to run um, alongside a team of really experienced um, trainers and facilitators um, who I wouldn't be able to do it without. Congratulations I mean that's a a, obviously Dimplin has created such an incredible foundation of knowledge and and you must be very honoured to have taken that on um, as your own business and we'll talk more about behaviour change training later on in the podcast but first of all I'd really like you to give a brief overview to our listeners about just what behavior change skills are? What does this phrase mean? Yeah, it's it's a question that comes up a lot um, and it can be quite confusing because in the literature, it can be referred to as lots of different things. Um, but essentially what we're talking about is patient-centered care or person-centered care. And behavior change skills are what we teach on our courses to facilitate patient-centered care. So we are guiding um, people in how to deliver patient-centered care, how to be patient-centered in their way of being with people. Um, And that there's no right or wrong. You know, all the approaches we teach are based on evidence-based approaches from the world of psychology. That's where they all originate from. But we've adapted them over time to make them applicable to particularly dietitians, but we also work with other healthcare professionals too. Um, and I think the important thing with it is, is the core qualities of us as practitioners. So being genuine, being ourselves, showing empathy, accepting that everybody's different, um, and that underpinning, um, emphasis on, on our way of being with people really. And why do you think that using behavior change skills is so relevant to healthcare professionals? Well, hopefully all healthcare professionals have gone into that work because they're caring and they want to help people. And we know that, um, that in order to help people, we need to understand them and we need to listen to them and we need to give them advice and information that is tailored to them as individuals. Um, so if we all want to be doing a really good job, which hopefully we do, (laughs) Um, then we need to listen to the evidence. We need to listen to what our patients are saying and we need to approach our consultations in a way that is going to achieve the best outcomes for the patient. And just um, drawing on what you mentioned about sort of the evidence behind the behaviour change approach and and behaviour change skills, Mm. are there any clinical guidelines which actually reference the importance of using behaviour change skills in a clinical setting? Yeah, there's loads out there. Um, they, they refer to things in slightly different ways. So as I said before, some will refer to it as a behavioral approach. Some refer to it patient-centered care. Some call it interpersonal skills. 
but there's nice guidelines and um, there's public health england has got a report the bda refer to it in their guidelines guidelines the royal college of nursing have got guidelines um and all the sort of other um bodies of healthcare professionals refer to communication skills um and that's essentially what we're talking about um so there is a, a vast amount of evidence there's also um a lot of patient experience um studies that have been done looking at um looking at the the practitioner and the practitioner style and how that can impact on the patient experience um so that research is there too um and i was i was saying to you earlier harriet i found a paragraph in the nhs long-term plan the other the other day when i was sort of refreshing myself and there's this sentence that really came to light with me um and i'm just going to read it because i don't want to say it wrong um so that they say the importance of what matters to someone is not just what's the matter with someone um and i thought that really summed it up nicely that it's about getting to know each of our patients as individuals not just as a condition yeah absolutely i think that's so important and do you feel that that is being taught to dietetic students in their degrees are they being taught the importance of this patient-centered care in your opinion um i think when i studied um it was still quite new um, so I, I'm, I was at university quite a long time ago now, um, but I have to say over the years, I think that this approach is becoming the um, becoming more important and more researched and universities are teaching more about it at university level. And I think from doing the courses, from teaching on the courses, we've noticed that a lot of people are coming onto our part one courses already quite familiar with the terms that we use. Um, so they are obviously being taught it at university um, a lot more. And we've actually had a couple of universities get in touch with us um, asking for some guidance or in some cases, a bit of teaching towards their programs to try and ensure that it's integrated within the programs. So I think it's definitely there in most cases now. Yeah, and, and that's really interesting. You talked a bit about um, how a lot of people have been coming to your online courses now. So uh, when I chatted to you a few months ago, um, your courses were predominantly run face to face. Is that is that right? Yeah. So up until COVID, <laughs> um, everything was face to face. Um, we ran all of our courses were two-day face-to-face um, courses and um, we did a couple of one-day kind of uh, disease-specific courses for want of a, a better word. We did a couple of in-house, we did do quite a lot of in-house training, but say up to COVID, it was all face-to-face. -face. So how has COVID impacted your business? Have you had to change things? Um, we've had a lot of change. Um, so we... First of all, um, we had already been developing some online modules. And so Dimpner and I, um, I suppose partly we wanted Dimpner's um, legacy, for want of a better word, to be continued. So we did a lot of work last year developing some online modules, um, which, are, which are now available, but they're, they're sort of short courses. So they're two to three hours long and they're really 
capturing the the sort of the theory parts of our courses um so these online modules are something we'd been developing already, um, but we managed to complete them in April, um, which happened to coincide with COVID. Um, that was something we already had in the pipeline, but what we weren't expecting is that we'd also have a demand for developing two-day virtual courses, so essentially the equivalent of our classroom-based courses. Um, so I have been incredibly busy this summer um, rewriting everything, all the lesson plans, all the course booklets, everything so that we can deliver virtually the, the full two day course. Um, and so we're actually running our first ones this week. Um, so fingers crossed it all goes well. Um, but yeah, so we we've now got two online products. We've got our short course modules and our full two day courses online um, and then in addition to that we've also been putting together some webinars um, to share a bit of our experience and expertise with with the general population and dietitians and I believe that people can access the webinars on the complete nutrition magazine website is that correct they're hosted on there they're hosted on there they're also hosted on the BDA and on our youtube channel as well they're all free access is that the behavior change training youtube channel yes yeah yeah behavior change training youtube channel and we did one for the yorkshire branch of the bda so that can be accessed through their youtube channel as well i believe great well good luck with the launch this week um one of my questions to you is are behavior change skills as important in a virtual online setting as they are in a face-to-face -face setting yes I think is the very is a very concise answer. Um, I think everything we do virtually involves behaviour change in the same way it does when we're face to face. Um, and I think that's that's something that perhaps is one of the misconceptions about behaviour change skills that sometimes people feel they're only relevant at the start of the consultation. You know, when you're welcoming somebody in, making them feel at ease, explaining sort of how the session's going to run. And then sometimes people sort of almost switch them off and go back into clinical mode. And um, and I, I think part of what we teach is that this is something that should be integrated throughout your whole conversation from the start to the end. And the same in a virtual setting. It's just as important to welcome somebody, explain how the session's going to run, put them at ease, um, refer to them by their name, all those sort of little things make just as much difference whether you're face-to-face -face or virtual. So do you have any top tips for how we can apply these behaviour change skills to a clinical consultation? Um, you mentioned about sort of opening the consultation and welcoming the patient. What would be your three top tips? Um, well, I would say that first impressions count so getting the start of your consultation right is really really important um and yeah i've already mentioned a couple welcoming somebody giving them time to settle checking their name checking how you pronounce the name if it's tricky um checking that you've got the right patient checking the time available all those sort of what i would call courtesy checks um making that time at the start really helps people to relax into the consultation and then asking a lovely kind of open question to welcome them give them a chance to tell their story that would be my kind of top top tip um and then i'd say when it comes to 
giving information, um, which is something that as certainly as a dietitian, we, we expect to do. Um, and that is our job to provide information. Um, but I would always say less is more, you know, if you're going to give somebody 10 pieces of information, are they really going to retain that information or would it be better just to give them two or three pieces of information, but make sure that they fully understand that information. And, you know, if they need further information, most of us can signpost them to additional sources of information or send extra things out in the post or via email to sort of top up if you feel that you've not covered everything that you were hoping to. And I suppose um, my last top tip is not to be afraid of emotion. I think, um, again, a lot of healthcare professionals are taught to not open a can of worms and not um, that they're almost afraid of a few tears and so they don't ask some of those sensitive questions or reflect emotions. But actually, if you think back to being a patient, if you've got something that is playing on your mind and it's really bothering you, are you listening to what that doctor or dietitian is saying? And the answer is probably not. You're probably not paying attention because whatever's bothering you is in your mind and it's buzzing about and it means you can't concentrate. So if you're working as a dietitian or a doctor or whatever your job is, allowing somebody to clear that emotion um, off their mind will allow them to listen and engage and hopefully have better outcomes at the end. I think those are three really strong top tips that will hopefully be very useful to dietitians listening. Now, some dietitians that I've spoken to have asked me, are behaviour change skills just appropriate to perhaps emotive clinical scenarios such as weight management? What would you say to that? Um, I would say that behaviour change skills are applicable to every conversation, every clinical setting, um, everywhere where we communicate with somebody, um, whether that's verbal or non-verbal in some cases. And I would say that, you know, I have worked in, and I can talk from my own experience, I've worked in a huge variety of different clinical and non-clinical settings. And I would say I have used these skills in every way as much in every setting so for example in intensive care um you know you've got a patient that's intubated and ventilated and probably isn't going to talk to you um but they might have some relatives there that really do need somebody to talk to or you might need to talk to the nursing staff to find out a bit of history or you might even need to pick up the phone and speak to the relatives at home and find out a bit of history about that person to be able to give them the best possible care so very relevant um i've worked in pediatrics which again is another area which people are sometimes a bit like mm, how do you use this with children and i say well a lot of the time in pediatrics you're actually having the conversation with the parents and there's a huge amount of emotion in pediatrics you know parents with sick kids that is really really tricky to manage you know and particularly if you've got more than one person in the room which often you have if you've got a child and a mum and a gran trying to manage that situation is really really tricky um so using these skills in in these settings is so important 
And um, so following on from that, are there any clinical settings where perhaps a behaviour change approach wouldn't be appropriate? I know you've mentioned that you're, you think it's sort of relevant to all clinical situations, um, but this is another question that I've been asked by dietitians. Are there any scenarios where you wouldn't use a behaviour change approach? I think there's some conditions where it's definitely harder um, and I would acknowledge that. So something that comes up quite a lot on our courses is um, managing it with um, interpreters or where people where the first language isn't English. Um, that poses quite a challenge um, with the verbal communication skills. So sometimes if you are using an interpreter, you do have to use more closed questions and ask more direct um, questions. Um, and that is something we just have to accept. Um, we can't change that, um, particularly if it's like a telephone interpreter type service. Um, but what we can do is think about our nonverbal communication in those settings. And we know that 60 to 90% of communication is nonverbal. So we can still make eye contact, we can still smile, we can still have warm body language um, and you know, nod and show understanding. Um, even if we can't use some of the verbal communication skills that we'd be referring to. Um, the other area that I would say is quite challenging is people with severe mental health conditions, particularly if they're hospitalized with mental health, with mental health difficulties. Um, but again, it wouldn't necessarily be the patient that you would be working with in some severe cases, it's more often than not that you might be working with the nursing staff or with family members rather than with the individual patient. Um, and again, hugely emotive conversations there. So I, th I think there's definitely a place for it. Yeah, I think the message I'm getting from you is that context is key and you may have to sort of um, make a judgment as to what the best way of using those skills is in your particular clinical scenario. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, is there still a role for prescriptive medicine? So in traditional medicine, um, you know, perhaps a practitioner is seen as a figure of authority and, and they're telling the patient what they recommend they should do. Is that part of patient-centered care? Is there still a role for that today, do you think? I think we have to be led by the patient. And I think patient-centered care comes down to patient autonomy. If a patient is asking to be told what to do, then you are providing patient-centered care by telling them what to do because that's what they've asked for. Um, but I think what we should be avoiding is telling is is giving uninvited in, uninvited guidance is what we should be careful of. Um, if your if you have asked an open question and your patient is inviting you to tell them what to do, that's a completely different situation. Um, so I'm not sure whether I fully answered the question there, but it's, um, yeah, I don't see that as the same as walking into a room and your, your clinician saying, right, you've got to take this pill, you've got to eat this, you've got to drink this. That, that's quite different. And I'm not sure that that's really in keeping with patient-centered care. So perhaps we can just expand on that in terms of um, a diet sheet, for example. Dietitians often mm. hand out diet sheets in consultations. I think when we chatted before, Sam, you've used an example of a patient on a low potassium diet and they might be given a resource with some foods that they, you know, it's recommended that they might like to avoid in their diet. So how would you recommend using those behavior change skills when offering a patient this diet sheet? Um, before you've talked about 
not sort of telling a patient, for example, you know, don't eat bananas, they're high in potassium. And then the patient turns around and says, well, I don't actually eat bananas anyway. So how could mm -hmm. you use those skills to avoid that sort of situation? Well, for me, the, the most important thing is getting to know the patient first. So it comes back to the beginning part of the consultation, understanding your patient's story. Um, for most people working as a dietitian, you will have probably already done a sort of a typical day or a diet history or had some kind of food recall um, conversation. So when I'm looking at providing information, the first thing is to ask permission from the patient. You know, would it be all right if I talk you through um, what a low potassium diet means for you? And hopefully they'd say yes. And then you'd give them a little bit of background on potassium. And then you might say, and I, I wonder if you've got any understanding of which foods have potassium in them. So you're finding out from the patient what they already know about potassium before you then kind of give any information. So you find out what they know, then you might sort of say, and would it be all right if I um, make some suggestions of changes that you could make to your diet um, that would reduce the potassium in your diet? So you're still giving that information. It's just the way that you frame it. And with the diet sheet, I, I do use diet sheets. I still work as a clinical dietitian doing some freelance work and I do use diet sheets, but I often only give them at the very end. So I will have this conversation with somebody first, find out what they already know, make some suggestions. And then I would say, and I'm, I'm going to give you some information to take away today. I know that you don't eat all the foods on here because we've already had this conversation, um, but it does highlight some foods that maybe would be best to keep out of your diet and some suggestions of alternative things that you could put in instead. Um, and you're giving that person that information to take away with them. Um, so we're not withholding information. And I think that's something that is really important. We would never withhold information. It's just tailoring the information so the person is going away with the key messages that are going to make a difference and improve their outcomes mm, and, and that's so important for patient-centered care like you said earlier mm. so um can we perhaps chat through another scenario where let's say for example this patient comes back to clinic a couple of months later and they've really found it difficult to make some of the changes that you had perhaps agreed in the consultation how could you apply the behavior change skills to explore perhaps why there were some barriers to making those changes? Um, well, this probably moves on to some of our more advanced communication skills, which we look at on the part two and the part three course. Um, the first thing, again, comes down to the start of the consultation and really trying to allow the patient to explain where they're at, you know, what has happened that has meant that they've not been able to put in place the plan that, that they agreed on before. Now, it may not be the patient. It may be that you, that the plan wasn't right for them. And, and that comes down to getting the plan right in the first place. Um, but I would want to understand, you know, what has happened in their life? Has there been another event that has taken priority that's meant they've not been able to implement these changes and being empathic, is really important to show your patient that you're there with them. You're not judging them. You just want to genuinely understand what has happened. Um, and this brings out all your motivational interviewing skills. Um, and if they can kind of come up with an example of a day where something's gone wrong um, 
and that's maybe like triggered a chain of events as we would call it we would look at one of the skills we teach on the part three course is understanding a behavioral chain so kind of trying to break down the day understand where things have gone wrong and we we do this with genuine curiosity so we just want to understand what has happened we're not judging somebody and it takes quite a lot of skill to not comment <laughs> on that all you're trying to do is understand what has happened and often by going through that process in a level of detail it allows the patient to understand where it went wrong so you know often you know they might have say for example skipped breakfast and ended up having three chocolate bars for their lunch um that's just a crude example but um what they might realize as they go through the days that actually they were feeling a bit lightheaded they were feeling hungry they went to the shop and they just grabbed the first thing that they found um but by them leading you through that conversation hopefully they can understand where it went wrong and then you can guide them to kind of come up with a plan of how to get around that how to stop that from happening again if possible does that yeah. make sense yeah it does i think i'm um, putting that, some of the ownership on the patient and perhaps by using those those skills it can help the patient to actually unravel their own solutions is that what you're saying mm. i think that's the key to patient-centered care is the patient being in charge um to a certain extent the patient understanding themselves and finding their own solutions and we are just guiding them um and you know it it takes a lot of skill to not go in with solutions too quickly um because if we get our magic wand down we try and fix it too quickly we're not really listening to what they're saying and we're not necessarily making it an individualized plan you just mentioned it takes a lot of skill to be able to do that as a practitioner so another question that i've had from um, some dietitians is can behavior change skills be learnt or is it something that you either have or you don't have yeah i think this comes this comes up a lot too and um it's a little bit controversial um my opinion is that some people have more skills than others naturally and i think that's fair to say about most things um but they definitely are skills and skills can be learnt and skills can be practiced um and the more we practice something the more we refine them that doesn't make us an expert necessarily but it means that we can improve um and i think as dietitians we're naturally quite good at reflecting um and there are things we can do to help ourselves you know for example videoing ourselves and having a bit of critique you could ask a colleague to give you some guidance or supervision um so i think the answer is i i think a bit of both i think we can learn them and some people naturally have them um does that answer the question <laughs> yeah absolutely and and as you'll mention later in the podcast of course there are ways that people can um, improve these skills and we'll, we'll talk more about your behavior change training courses at the end um just one final question um so we've talked a lot about using behavior change skills in a clinical setting but what about practitioners who may not even work in the medical setting can behavior change skills be applied outside of a clinical role in your opinion 
Um, I would say absolutely yes. Um, I personally use these skills in every aspect of my life. Um, you know, when I'm a bit frazzled and I'm trying to pay attention to the children after school, um, I'm told they're very helpful when you're dating. Not that it's something I do very often anymore. Um, I would say any, any kind of service industry um, where you're working with members of the public, these skills would be applicable. Um, very much so. And for me, um, I use them when I'm working with my team of facilitators and trainers, running training sessions, anybody in a management role who's managing a team of people would definitely use these skills on a day-to-day -day basis. So that leads us nicely onto my next question. Where can people go for more information if they would like to do some behavior change training? Um, well, Behaviour Change Training is a company. Um, we've got um, a website, um, www.bctonline.co.uk. Um, we've got a Facebook page, LinkedIn, Twitter account. Um, and you're welcome to get in touch with me directly. I'm on LinkedIn as Samantha Howard. Um, I'll be very happy to discuss any of this with anybody, really. Great, thank you. And I think you've also recently written an article in the Complete Nutrition magazine as well. And perhaps we can link to that in our show notes in case people would like to read a bit more information on the importance of behaviour change skills. Um, yeah, so we can that's great. Do that. um, so before we finish, we'd like to ask all of our guests a couple of quick fire questions. So Sam, what would you say has been the biggest lesson that you've learnt during your career to date? Um, it's tricky. I mean, for me, I would say be brave, follow your heart and take every opportunity while you've got it because you just don't know what's around the corner. Um, and you know, don't regret it. You, you can only live once. So make the most of what you've got really. I think that was more than one thing. <laughs> I think, I think we'll let you off for that. <laughs> Um, but that, similar to our second question, actually, what would you say has been your biggest achievement to date? And that can be professional or personal. Well, I'm really lucky. Um, I live in a beautiful place and I've got three beautiful children. And so I'm very blessed um, in my personal life. Um, and I'm also really proud that alongside that, I've managed to keep my career going and now have got the ability to develop my career and develop BCT um, and I hope that I can do Dimpna proud really. Absolutely and perhaps Dimpna will even be listening to this episode. Um, so hi Dimpna if you are listening and my final question being a dietitian if you were cast away to a desert island what would be your last meal? Um, well, for me, it would definitely be some type of potato. <laughs> I absolutely love potatoes. I don't mind what they are, whether they're jacket potatoes, chips, dauphinoise, whatever, but definitely potatoes. Crisps, does that count as potatoes or it has to be? Yeah, <laughs> I like crisps. Crisps are good. <laughs> you've, got, you've got a savoury tea. I have, very much so. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much, Sam. It's been wonderful chatting to you and... Thank you to our listeners. Our next episode of Dietitian Cafe will be coming very soon.